The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father, may the words that we have just sung be true of us. May we be a people both individually and corporately who are identified not by our sin nor by our greatest accomplishments but that we would be known as the people on whom the blessing of God has come. That the most important thing about us, the defining thing about our lives would be this. God loved us and gave his son for us He would mercifully wash away our sins and receive us into his presence. This is the most important thing, Father. So help us to hear your word in light of this. That by the working of your spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. This word, as you tell us, your power, it worked within us all that it took to make us Christian. And find there the assurance that we will remain yours until our dying day. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and return to your feet, please. We've read some sizable portions of scripture today and I find that to be a good thing. We continue reading Ephesians, the first chapter, verse 15 all the way through verse 23. This is the inerrant infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And all God's people said, Amen. may be seated. God bless the reading of his holy word. So I have learned as I have aged and perhaps if I, as I have mellowed some that I'm pretty good at asking questions. When I get to know somebody, when I'm, when I'm first sitting down to break bread with somebody, when I'm just trying to really connect with, with someone sitting across from me, there's, there's questions. And there's, there's some really easy ones for me. One, one of those is food. I could talk about food all day long. And so I find it easy to sit down across from people and ask them, you ever had lamb? We talk through the beauties of a good cut of lamb. We can talk about sports, we can talk about family, we can, we can talk about, about hobbies. But when I find myself seated across from someone that counts himself a Christian, 
And I want to know the kind of thoughts that they have about God. I found that there is one question that is perhaps more instructive than, than any other. You see, I can throw out some big Bible terms. I can ask, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Or are you reformed? Or do, do you believe that God is truly in control of all things? And the, the problem is that there are degrees to our understanding of each one of these questions. That yes is not a, really a sufficient answer. But there's, there's one question that I've found to really reveal the thoughts a man has, not only about himself, but about God more than any other. And the question goes something like this. I've not got it scripted out, but generally speaking, the question will go something like this. Do you believe that natural man, that's just ordinary, average, everyday man, the kind of man that you meet at the grocery store or the ball field or in your office, man as he is born in Adam, do you believe that ordinary, everyday, natural man has the ability to repent of his sin and believe in Christ apart from any kind of supernatural working of God? Or do you believe that this same kind of man, that unless God does something, something to be clear that he may not do in the life of everyone else, that unless God intervenes, unless he works, unless he does something powerful, that it doesn't matter how many times this man hears the gospel. It doesn't matter how convincing the person sharing the gospel with them is. That this man will never, ever, ever repent of his sin and trust in Christ. Now, the vast majority of evangelicals that you would talk to, they are probably going to say, well, of course, grace must come. Apart from the grace of God, of course, no one will ever believe in Jesus Christ. But if, if you press a bit, what you'll find is that the majority of them believe that this grace has been extended to all of mankind. Some, some type of general or provenient or enabling grace that God has done something for the whole of humanity that means that that same man you meet at the ballpark or the man you meet in the office, that natural man, that by the grace of God, the whole of humanity has the ability to repent of his sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, the, the problem with this line of thinking is it neglects the whole of Scripture that talks about actual men, real men, the kind of men you meet at work. As a matter of fact, you, and describes who you once were, saying that you were blind and you were deaf that you had hard hearts, that you were unable to understand the things of God, that you were unable to do anything that pleases God, that, that you were a man who loved the darkness and hated the light. Or to use the language of Ephesians 2, on the back end of the text that we've just read, you were spiritually dead. I, I told you last week that the problem that many of us have with understanding the power of God at work in making a Christian is we underestimate the power of that which once held us. We underestimate the power of spiritual death and darkness. We underestimate the, the power of sin. We underestimate the power of fear and even the, of death and of fear of death. And therefore, we greatly underestimate the power of God necessary to bring you out of all of that, to set you free, 
and it calls you to come to Christ. But I'd, I'd remind you that this isn't just the preaching of Paul, or this isn't just the preaching of a man like me. You'll read through the Gospels with a discerning ear and really paying attention to some of Jesus' teaching. What you'll find is some of the, the greatest thoughts on soteriology with regards to the way Jesus spoke about it, it came in light of men who did not believe. He would be speaking to his disciples that were around and those who did believe, he would want to instruct them on, let me tell you why those men over there don't believe. You, you think about, for instance, in John chapter 6, what was once a booming crowd, a, by most measures of today's preachers, a fantastic ministry. Thousands of people literally eating from his hand. And Jesus says some incredibly difficult things. Everyone wanders away. Jesus looks to his men and says, there are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You see, if this granting has already been happened to the whole of humanity, that doesn't explain why those dudes just walked away. He's saying, let me explain to you the reason that one man comes to me while his twin brother walks away. God has granted. He has caused. By the power of his spirit, he has ensured that that man will come to me while the other will continue on and wander away. Now, part of the issue we have, I, I believe, is, is not only underestimating the power of once held us, but we greatly underestimate what it actually means to come to Christ. We've, we've turned it into little more than a willingness to walk down an aisle, to utter some words like Jesus is Lord, to, to maybe mimic a prayer that a pastor gives us to say, and then voila, you're Christian. But those of you that were here on on Wednesday night, that we spent our last three Wednesday nights together working through Psalm 51, and that's King David's song of repentance. And it was a challenging time. It was not an easy lesson for me to teach any easier than it was for those of you that were here to sit under it. And I reminded you whenever we came here together that you are not saved by the power of your repentance. You're, you're not saved by the size of your faith, but that we do well as Christian people to look to those magnificent pictures of repentance and ask, is this the direction? Is this the desire? Is this the pattern of my heart? And I challenge any one of you in this room to go and read through Psalm 51, really consider what was going on in the heart of King David at that moment, including the fact that his very worst day as an adulterer, as a liar, and as a murderer. That his repentance from that very worst day is a song sung by the people of God in repentance. True repentance doesn't hide. True repentance doesn't hold on to pride and reputation. But I challenge you to go and read through a psalm like Psalm 51 and say, oh yeah, anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. I'm not speaking about the words, I'm speaking about the heart. Beloved, I'm telling you, no man can do that apart from a heart transplant. The powerful working of God. And if you ever sought to do this, if you ever sought to call a man to true repentance, to true saving faith in Christ Jesus, realizing the power of that which once held him, and, and the true reality, the power of what is necessary in order to turn and repent and believe, 
you'll realize how utterly helpless you can feel in those moments. you realize how little you have to do with any of this. You're just a man sowing seed. Sounds biblical, doesn't it? Completely dependent upon something outside and above and beyond yourself to bring any kind of light, any kind of life. You realize it has very little to do with the power of the preacher, the ability of the speaker, the, the cleverness of the evangelist. But that doesn't seem to be the, the pattern, again, I say, for most evangelicals. There's, there's a man called Charles Finney, and most of you probably have never heard the name Charles Finney, but the reality is the vast majority of worship services going on all throughout this country, they are patterned by this man. This guy called Charles Finney, he, you see, he, he thought that the ability to lead men to Christ, it was tied up very much with emotion. We've got to get people in the right emotional state, and then they'll come to Christ. And I've got to be persuasive in the way that I speak. And so he wrote books on how to cause revival. And I always wonder about this, right? There's a sign out in front of the church that says revival three nights this week at six o'clock. I didn't know you had a direct line to the Holy Spirit's agent. I, I didn't know that you could guarantee that he would show up. Now, to be fair, what most people mean is we're going to ask for revival. We're going to preach the word of God and we're going to pray that the spirit of God will fall upon this place and that hearts will be transformed. But for many of them, they've been taught that there's a formula, that there's a pattern. If you just punch in A and B and C, revival comes. And if you, if you pay attention, if you just think back to probably some worship services that you've, that you've sat in and you'll, you'll hear the tones of this. One of his tools, this man, Charles Finney, this is, this is a guy that was preaching and teaching and doing these revivals in the mid-1800s. One of his tools was called the anxious bench. It, it's really where we get today's altar call from. There, there would be a bench up at the front, and any who were stirred emotionally to the word that had been said, or they felt some conviction or pang in their spirit, they would come forward, they would be met there by a pastor, the pastor would pray with them, and he would urge them that he would sit them on the anxious bench, hoping that all the eyes upon this man and all the pressure of that moment would lead him to a decision. This doesn't come necessarily from a bad place. It comes from a heart that desperately desires for men to be saved. And was anyone saved in a thing like this? Absolutely. I've told you before, just because we've done away with the altar call does not mean that you weren't actually saved in an altar call. The Spirit of God works in all kinds of ways. But the reality is that Emotions are fickle and, and they lie. Emotions can affect something. If all we're talking about is just getting you to confess something or maybe getting you to cry or, or getting you to, to agree that I can baptize you in, in the baptistry, then sure, emotions are going to play a great role in this. But if you compare that to a man like Jonathan Edwards and the real Great Awakening, a man who had come an entire generation earlier, where you saw true revival by the hundreds, by the thousands of men truly being converted, lives being transformed. And you look at the pattern of what they did, it was the word. It was a focus on the holiness and gravity of God. I, I told you earlier that we've read large chunks of scripture. Those of you that were here with us whenever we began our study of the book of Ephesians, you remember what we did on that first, that first Sunday in the book of Ephesians? We read the book of Ephesians. Imagine that. Because we believe there's power in the word of God. That that's what he uses by his spirit to actually call men to life. 
And so we, we talk as a staff about, about our pattern of worship. You know, we've changed, right? We've, we've broken up the song service some, and I come and I lead you in a, um, in a, in a prayer of, of repentance and, and confession. And last week we had a baptism, you remember? So we, so we had a song, and then we had a prayer, and then we had a song, and then we had a baptism, and then we had a song. And there was talk about, is it bad to break up the music like this? And as I was sitting there earlier thinking about it, I realized that there's great danger in worship through song. Not that we should ever not do it. It's, it's called, it's commanded in Scripture. We're to sing songs of praise. We're to, we're to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. But there's also a great danger that comes through song. And that danger is that song by its very nature is emotional. It's, it's easy to get wrapped up as we, we hit the high notes or the, the bass hits us in the chest chest or we hear our brethren singing behind us lifting up their voices it's easy for our emotions to get carried along now there should be emotion in worship there should be emotion but that emotion must be driven by the truth that we see and the truth that we sing the one that we sing to so i think breaking up the music might be helpful it keeps us from falling into some type of emotionalism some type of reliance upon this but surely you, you see the, the contrast and how the way we think about that question I asked, it shapes even our worship. Our worship styles and our worship patterns. It shares the way that we share the gospel with our children. It shares the way that we pray, changes the way that we, we pray for our, our children. I, um, you, you've often heard me joke that anyone that has unsaved children, I, I assure you, they, they pray like a Calvinist. They pray God change their heart. God, wreck them. God, do the thing that only you can do. And, but when we rightly recognize the power that's necessary to make a Christian, it changes the way that we pray and it changes the way that we evangelize. But even with regards to the Christians, this isn't just a thing for the lost out there. Even with regards to us who are already in Christ, it changes the way we live. When we don't grasp the power of God that was necessary in bringing us to salvation, we lose sight of that power that's still at work in us today. It's what I tried to tell you last week. It's what I tried to show you. That's why Paul prays the way that he prays. He's praying that we would come to the knowledge, to a deeper understanding, to, a, to an experiential understanding of the power of God, the immeasurable greatness of the power of God that was necessary, not just to get you to the finish line, not just to someday raise you from the dead, but to cause you to repent and believe in Christ Jesus. And I told you last week that we might be tempted to ask, why did he choose the resurrection of Christ Jesus? Why does he say, that's where you will see the power that was at work in you at the moment of your regeneration, at the moment of your conversion. And I told you that this is because in the raising of Christ Jesus from the dead, we see the perfect analogy John, uh, excuse me, Charles Hodge says that it's not only the symbol, but it's the pledge and the procuring cause of our own resurrection. So this, this picture, it works in two ways. Number one, when we recognize the power of God necessary to raise Christ from the dead, to bring him into heaven, seat him at his right hand, and to place all things under his feet, we see something of the power at work within us. But we also see a picture, the way in which that power is exercised towards us. That our resurrection is tied to his resurrection. I was listening to a song this morning. Is it Johnny Cash that sings Ain't No Grave? Yeah. I don't know how great the theology of that song is, but 
I think there's something there because he's, he's saying, if you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. That what we see when Christ Jesus walked out of the grave was not just him holding his life over his head, but our own. That's what Paul says in Romans 6, Romans 6 verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This is a verse that you hear me say whenever I baptize. Buried with Christ in baptism, risen to walk in the newness of life. That those of us who have died with Christ, we too have raised with Christ. This is a thing which has happened. So then it frees us from ever getting wrapped up in our own subjective emotions and calls us to an objective reality. You want to know where your resurrection comes from? You want to have assurance that God will not leave you short? You want to know the place from which spiritual life springs? Don't look to yourself. Don't look to your own weakness. Don't look to your own abilities in repentance or in faith. You look to the objective reality of Christ Jesus and the empty tomb. You look to heaven, and there you'll find your hope where the sun is seated even now. That's the only place that you can ground, that you can ground your assurance of salvation. But then in addition to this, we can look there to find the assurance that we will persevere. I, I wonder at times, I, I'll find myself getting into this real, I, I think it's a cocky state maybe, where I act as if finishing this race is just easy peasy. And I think when I do that, I neglect all the times in scripture where there's warning to take great heed lest I fall away. Passages in Hebrews that tells me that I've got to shed every weight of sin and every encumbrance of the enticing things of this world. I've got to run hard. I've got to run hard with my eyes fixed on Christ. I think there's times when I've made this race into a cakewalk, and that's just not at all the picture that Scripture paints for us. But at the same time, it never once paints any doubt as to whether or not I'll get there thanks to the power of Christ. It's a hard race, and it's a long race, and it's a race which requires, requires endurance, but all those things come from him. But I can only have assurance that those things come from him if I keep my eyes fixed on him. And the power of God has been at work from the very beginning. Now, I'm not waiting for the power to kick in. I compared it last week to a, a motorized bicycle. I don't pedal for a while, and then maybe eventually as I make it across some mark, then the power kicks in. It's been his power from beginning all the way through the end, through the end so that when I do hit those walls... When I do find the call for endurance to be smacking me right in the face, when I do find the enemy to be bearing his fangs and fear starts to set in, when I do look around me at others who are falling away that I thought would never, that my hope and my confidence is found in going all the way back to my own conversion and going, I saw the power of God at work there because he did the impossible. He calls me to do a thing I would have never otherwise done on my own. Therefore, I can trust that he's going to continue to do things that I would have never otherwise done on my own all the way until my dying day. So again, we, we take this, it's a bit of a divergence here, I suppose, as, we, as we, we get to the third of these things that Paul prays for, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us. And then before coming back to us at the beginning of chapter 2, he wants us to focus in on Christ. And so I, that's, that's my hope 
for you today as we, as we move away and, and we start talking about how the power of God was worked in the life of Christ Jesus and is being worked in the life of Christ Jesus even now that you will recognize we're not just hearing a cool story about the one that we worship, we're hearing a story about us. We're hearing a story about the way that God works in you, in you. and that some of you perhaps had walked into this day feeling not all that powerful and not all that faithful and not all that likely to endure to the end that you will see in this kind of assurance that makes you run through a brick wall if that's what it, that's what it takes. So Paul prays that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might, they worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also and the one to come. So he's right back to talking about the working. The, the power that he worked with great might in us is the same power that he worked. Remember, that's energia. That's not just the possibility or, of power or potential power or power that he possesses but hasn't yet put to work. This is the actual working, the actual energizing, the actual accomplishing of the power of God. And it's saying here that he worked it. That he had to flex that power. That's the word I kept finding myself using last week. It's one thing to have the power. It's one thing to be the, the bulldozer sitting in the field. It's another thing to crank it up and get to work. And that this is the thing that we have seen in the life of Jesus. And that it was that kind of power that was necessary to raise Jesus from the dead. Again, I, I wonder at times, is because I've grown up in the church, because I've always known the story of the resurrection of Jesus, because I've always known the story that promised my own resurrection at the end because I've always had parents who said to me, death is not the end. That I somehow take for granted the power of death. The, the tearing apart of that which God had joined together. You remember the, the story of God making man as he formed man out of the dust of the earth. Gave him a, a physical form, but then he leaned down and breathed life, spirit into this man that man was meant to be spiritual beings and fleshly bodies, but that at death, that is torn apart. That is ripped in two because our body goes into the dirt and our, our soul departs to be with the Lord. And, and, and perhaps because we have so, we become so institutionalized, I guess I'd, I'd say, in the, in the way that people die. People don't get to die necessarily at home as often as they once did. They, they, there's, a, there's a sterility to it. It's just, it's off there somewhere. Yeah, people die, but they go over there to die. Because we so rarely have the privilege and the honor, and beloved, it is a privilege and an honor to be at the bedside of a saint when they close their eyes in this life. But because we so seldom get to see death up close and personal like this, we, we forget the power of, of death and what, what's happening there. But I assure you, if you ever stand at the bedside of one who is not a believer, you'll know the power of death because you'll see it in the fear in their eyes. And, and, and the undefeated nature of death as well, of course, right? Basically, the minute someone is born, they're headed to death. The clock is ticking. We don't know how many minutes are on the clock, but the clock begins ticking at the moment. Death is undefeated. Death and taxes is what they say, right? That death comes for everyone. And, and even for the Old Testament saint that didn't ha have a, a fully formed understanding of, of the resurrection, they had some idea. We, we see this in David saying that I know that I will go to be 
with him, speaking of his son that had passed away. He won't come to me, but I'm going to go to him. And understanding that he was still. The boy still lived somewhere, just not here. But because they didn't have this fully realized understanding of, of the afterlife, you hear words from David like Psalm 30, verse 8. To you, O Lord, I cry. To the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. How am I going to praise you if I'm dead? Dust can't cry out. Well, I suppose Jesus might have replied, actually, I can make the rocks cry out if that's what I desire. But you understand the, the point that for all those that don't know the full picture of the resurrection, the promise of the, li promise of the life to come, certainly for the world outside of the church, has no understanding of, of the word. It's death and then it's nothing. So it's an incredibly powerful foe, an incre incredibly powerful enemy. But then here comes Christ Jesus and he speaks about it in ways that no one ever has. He starts talking about death as a thing that he has control over. Even when he says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down and I take it back up. And you've seen that picture. If, you, if you've studied through any of the gospels and the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ, you know what happened. It wasn't just a cessation of life that came upon Jesus Christ. He let out a loud, loud cry and then he gave up the ghost. He let loose of his spirit. No one took his life from him. Not Pilate, not Caesar, not the soldiers. He laid it down. Who has the power over death? You can't do this. Spoiler alert. You can't just give up your spirit right, out, right here in a moment. But he says, I have the power to lay it down. And I, of course, have the authority to take it back up. And then after the resurrection, and you see Peter there, and he's, he's preaching a sermon to all these men that are trying to figure out, what is this power that's come upon y'all? Because they see the power of God coming upon them. And at first, they don't know what to do with it. They assume the people must be drunk. Because the world doesn't know what to do with people filled with the power of God. They don't, they don't know what to make of it. They've got to compare it to some experience that they have likewise had. And they say, well, surely these guys are, are drunk. Peter says, no, this is what God had said would happen. But he, he goes on to say this, that Jesus was delivered up. Acts 2, verse 23. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death couldn't hold Jesus down. Number one, because it had no claim over him. It had no right to him. The wages of sin are death. He knew no sin. He had fulfilled all righteousness. Death had no claim over Christ Jesus, nor was it powerful enough. And only he possessed the power to walk out of the grave. No man had ever conquered death like this. We had seen men who the power of God had come upon and they had been resuscitated. But this wasn't a resuscitation. This was something altogether new, a resurrection, rising in glory and honor and power. A body that was fitted for the life that was to come. And we see this, almost, almost this taunting nature in Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians 15. We didn't get to it earlier in David's reading, but 1555, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? We've defanged death. That's what Christ Jesus has done. He's rendered it powerless because what is the power of death? It's separation. But Christ says, I will put it back together. That you walk through this death right into the presence of God. 
that more than just showing the power of God, though it was a vindication of who Christ Jesus was, his raising again from the grave. Paul tells us in Romans, the very beginning of that letter, that he was declared to be the Son of God with power in his resurrection. It was a vindication that Jesus is who he says he is. That the power of God was exercised on behalf of his Son. He confirmed, this indeed is my beloved Son with whom I am pleased. Death cannot hold him. Death has no claim over him. But in addition to this, it said much about us. Again, I tell you, when we look to Jesus Christ, and that really is the key to Christian life, is getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ. You want to consider the gifts of God? You look to Christ. The power of God? You look to Christ. Your own salvation? The promise of endurance? The promise of resurrection? It's always getting our eyes on Christ. And one of the things we see in Christ is not just a vindication of his personhood and, and an assurance that the message he preached was true and affirmation that he is the beloved and blessed son of the most high. But it's also a picture of our own justification. Romans 4.25 that he says that he was delivered for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. That not only has Jesus in his resurrection conquered the power of physical death, but he's conquered all that death entails. The wages of sin. Separation from God. Eternal wrath. That when Christ Jesus was raised and walked out of the tomb, that what we see there is an assurance that our sins would be forgiven. That Christ Jesus was a worthy and a sacrifice received by the Father. That when he said on that cross, it is finished, it was actually finished. But in addition to this, we see that in the resurrection of Christ Jesus, he has destroyed the work of the devil. That's the promise, wasn't it? Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, why was he coming? To stomp the head of the serpent. To destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We see in the resurrection of Christ Jesus not just the generic power of God in display. But we see what it means for that power to be used towards us. Because in the raising of Christ Jesus from the dead, it affirmed that he is the one worthy of all honor and worship and praise. It assured us that those who are found in him have been justified, found completely righteous before God. And it was an assurance that the devil had been defeated, that he had been destroyed, that his head had been stomped in exactly the way that God had promised going all the way back to the garden. So Paul says that he has been raised as an exercise, as a, as a show of the power of God, that same power that has worked within us. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop just with Jesus coming and taking upon himself flesh and doing this thing that was necessary, doing this powerful thing that only God can do. He goes on to say that he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And with this, we are reminded that Christ Jesus did not shed his humanity at his resurrection. He needed somewhere to go. See, see, bodies, even spiritual bodies, they have to be someplace. They have to be somewhere. And that somewhere, according to Scripture, is the heavenly places. I think, I think there's great danger in the way that we can sometimes think about Jesus if we're not careful. Because we've not walked with him and we've not talked with him face to face the way that the first disciples did. If we're not careful, we can turn him into just a spirit or just a movement or just a thought, or just an idea, or just a power, we can forget that he's a person. That not only is he a person, but he's a person fully human.
that when he ascended into the clouds, what did the angel tell the disciples? Why are you standing here looking into the clouds? This one who has left, in that same way he will come back. He left with a body, he comes back with a body. A glorious body to be sure. Spiritual body to be sure. A body that was fitted for this place where he has gone. This place called heavenly places. But beloved, it does us well to remember that this one who sits at the right hand of the Father, dare I say he's one of us. Still bearing the marks of the crucifixion, still bearing the marks of our sin. So that he is there in the heavenly places. Now that's a unique phrase. It's only used, as best I could tell, heaven of course is talked about in scripture plenty. But this word heavenly places, it's only used five times in the whole of the New Testament. And it's only used in Ephesians. We saw it up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. We see it here. We see it in Ephesians 2.4. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. So clearly we're meant to have some affinity, some, some joy, some excitement, some thanksgiving towards the heavenly places because it's not just where God dwells. It's not just where Christ Jesus is ascended. It's the place from which our spiritual blessings come. It's the place from which endless spiritual blessings will be bestowed upon us in the age to come. But there's more. If you continue to read through the book of Ephesians, you'll see that there are some evil forces in the heavenly places as well. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That makes things a bit more complicated, doesn't it? It's not just the place where God dwells. It's not just the place where Christ Jesus to which Christ Jesus has ascended. It's not just the place from which our spiritual blessings go. It's not just a place where we are already seated with him, but apparently there's also spiritual forces of evil there. Now, I'm going to exercise some real pastoral restraint right here by not chasing that rabbit fully. We will wait until the text carries us there, and then at that point we'll talk about what, what, what is he doing here with these spirit, evil forces, uh, evil spiritual forces there. But, but here's the point I want to make this morning. Just saying that Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead and just saying that Christ Jesus has been taken up in the heavenly places doesn't tell us everything we need to know about where he is or his exaltation. That's why he goes on to say that he is at the right hand of the Father. That that's where we see the power of God at work more fully. That that's where we see the true exaltation of Christ. That he has seated him at his right hand. Now that, there's a phrase that we use today that gives you a very clear picture of what this means. Your right-hand man. How often do you, you hear men speaking of this? Your right-hand man. This is the one that has your authority, that has your power, that has your right to act, that, that speaks on your behalf. And as you work through the Old Testament, I didn't really know how to do this search, so I just searched for the word right in Hebrew, like right, and looked through all the times that it popped up in Scripture. And there's quite a few, and some of them are completely worthless. But some of them are helpful. Like Psalm 63, 8, it says that your right hand upholds me. Psalm 108, 6, God brings salvation by his right hand. Psalm 118, 15, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Exodus 15, 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. 
Now, this isn't telling us that God is not a Benjaminite left-handed. This isn't saying that when God swings his sword, he has to take it into his right hand. This is a position of honor and power and privilege. This is why we saw the mother of James and John coming to Jesus and saying, would you grant me whatever I ask of you? And what she asked was that he would allow her boys, one to sit at his right hand and one to sit at his left when he came into his kingdom. I ask you a question. Why didn't she ask that both boys sit at his right hand? Because there's only one right hand position. That's a tricky question. You could have John at his right hand, but then James would be at the right hand of John. I'm not trying to be silly. I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm trying to show you the exclusivity of this position. There's only one right hand. There's only one right hand position of power and honor and majesty and privilege. And that is the one that is possessed to this day by Christ Jesus. But he doesn't just stand there. It says that he was seated. It seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And, and to be seated is, is a clear show of victory, right? A king does not sit down upon his throne until the work is completed, until the victory has been won. You think of Psalm 110.1, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Come and have a seat. Come and, come and rest from your work. You get to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10.11. It talks about this. It says that every priest stands daily in service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. Because the sins of the world cannot be taken away by the blood of bulls or goats or lambs or doves or any such thing. Those men must always stand in service because there's always more work to be done. There's always more cleansing to be offered. There's always more sacrifice to be given. But Christ Jesus who gave himself is a once and for all sacrifice, the victory being complete. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Beloved, everyone in that day knew exactly what that language meant, to see one seated upon a throne at the right hand of God. There was no mystery behind this. We have to work to dig through because we don't know anything about thrones. We don't know anything about kings. We don't know anything about right hands of power. We don't necessarily know what it means for one to sit. And so we've got to do this digging. But the people living in the first century, they knew exactly what this meant. You don't know how I know? Because of their reaction whenever Jesus spoke like this. You remember what happened is the high priest comes to Jesus and asks him, Mark 14, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the man ripped his robe and lost his mind. This was pure blasphemy. To say that you are the one seated at the right hand. He says here, at the right hand of power. And power in my text and probably in yours is capitalized. He's speaking about the one who is all powerful. That he is the one who is seated there. He is the one who is going to complete the work once and for all, then take his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, vindicated, exalted, high and lifted up, above all other, taking his kingly office. There are, of all the things that, that people in, in churches like to argue about, one of them is the kingdom. What, what, what is the kingdom of God? What, what does the reign of Christ look like? When is the reign of Christ coming? What is the millennium? What, what, how do I wrap my mind around all these things? But beloved, I'll tell you one thing with absolute certainty. Christ Jesus reigns today. He is seated at his father's right hand and he is reigning now. 
That we don't wait for the kingdom of God to kick in. We don't wait for the kingdom of God to someday be inaugurated. To be sure, the consummation is yet to come. The enemies still roam. There's always this already not yet tension that we find throughout the New Testament. That it is the hour to come which has already come. That even right now we wait for those final enemies to be put under the feet of Christ Jesus. And yet he reigns today. He reigns in power and providence over the whole of creation. Even while he reigns in grace and in truth over his church. You see there are people that will say things like, you know, Christ Jesus reigns today. He reigns in the hearts of his believers. And that's, that's true. He is Lord, and we submit to him as Lord, and we honor him as our king. When I meet with children, and they say that they want to be Christian, and they want to be baptized, and they want to follow Jesus, and I ask them, what, what does it mean to you for someone to be Lord? Oftentimes I'll say it just means he's the boss and you're not. Whatever he says goes. And so it's in no way wrong to say that Christ Jesus is king over his people in our hearts, reigning and ruling right now. But beloved, he is king over the whole earth right now as well. That's what this text is telling us. We don't have to wait for his return to someday be king. Do you remember when he was born? What did the wise men say? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Even at his death, they spoke the truth while thinking they mocked. Well, they put the placard over his head. Here he is, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And, and we talked about this during our studies of the incarnation, that that baby that was there in his mother's hands, that he was controlling the heart of King Herod who sought to take his life. That he is the one who has always and eternally reigned as king. Number one, because he is the eternal son of God. He is God the son, the one through whom and for whom all these things have been created. But if he had only reigned and ruled and conquered death as God the Son, then we'd still be lost. The one seated upon the throne would not be the Theonitas, the God-man. He'd just still be God. And we would be lost. So it was only in him coming and, and, and humiliating himself, condescending to take upon himself the fullness of humanity, that he then would reign as the God-man, that we would find salvation and assurance of a future hope. But beloved, make no mistake, he reigns today. There's no square inch of this entire universe. Isn't that what Abraham Kuyper says? There's not one square inch of the entire universe over which the sovereign Christ does not proclaim, this is mine. Mine. Your marriage, that's mine. Your money, that's mine. Your cancer, that's mine. The death that awaits you at the end, that's mine. The kings, they're mine. Everything in all the universe, this is mine. Paul makes that explicit. Because what does he say? He says that he has placed them far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Far above, above and beyond. Remember last week we, we tried to wrestle with this what does it mean to be immeasurable? And I said it was to throw beyond, is the, is if you just break down the parts to the word. It, this is beyond anything you could imagine, beyond anything that you could throw towards, beyond anything you could look towards, beyond anything your pea brain could conjure up. He is this far above all of these. All rule, RK is the word. It's, it, it points to the beginning, to one who is, he has primacy in his rule or, or in his reign. And he talks about authority, ex exousia. That's the right to do something, isn't it? So he's, he's so far above and beyond we can't imagine 
the one who has primacy in his rule and the one who has the authority to rule. And then here comes the word power again, dynamis. It's, it's the ability to exercise, to, to do whatever you want to do without any resistance able to stop you. And then dominion, that's a rare word. And I'm looking at my watch and realizing I way underestimated how much I had to say on this, but it's a, it's a rare word that, that points to the realm. There's nowhere you can go. Again, what did I say? Every square inch, not just in the visible world, but in the invisible world, not just in heaven, but in earth and under the earth, there is nowhere that you can go to escape the power and the rule and the reign of Christ. If you go to the Colossians, it also includes the word thrones here. There is no honor. There is no majesty. There is no position higher than Christ Jesus. Not just here, but heaven and, and in earth. In Psalm 2, you'll recall that God is almost mocking the nations. And he asks, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst our bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. We're reminded that these... I believe what Paul has in mind here is spiritual forces. I believe he is talking about angels and demons and the whole of cosmic forces, but also those earthly forces that are under the rule of cosmic forces, kings and leaders and rulers. And what does it say here? That they, they band together, that the nations, they rally together seeking to, to bust the chains of Christ, this one who rules over every inch of all creation. They say, we don't like his rule. And we don't like his reign, and so surely we can in some way overpower him. And what does Psalm 2 says? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The one who sits on the throne, he laughs. Not because he thinks it's funny, but it is comical to think that they could overthrow him. He is so far above all rule and authority and honor and privilege and dominion and power and everything else. And again, I say I don't think he's just speaking of earthly powers. I think primarily he's thinking of heavenly powers, but I don't think he's just thinking of demonic powers. I think he's speaking of angels as well, the elect among the angels. You read through the book of Hebrews, and the author there seems very concerned to make clear that we don't worship angels, or we don't see Jesus as just the head of the angels. 1 Peter 3.22, speaking on this same thought, says, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven, and he is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, all having been subject to him. All that once held us captive and all that we might be tempted to bow down to and fear, that he reigns so far above and beyond these things in a place that can only be called the right hand of the Most High God, and that he sits having completed the work that needs to be done, that this is the power that is at work within you, the kind of power that puts him above everything that once held you captive, both to fear and to death. Sin, Satan, all, all of these things, and everything that would seek to destroy you. See, it's one thing if Christ Jesus can come and set us free from those things, but what then if those things are going to later get the upper hand? What then if those things are going to detract you? Look, I can't follow you, Christ Jesus, into this freedom if you can't keep me free. You can't ensure to me that you have rule and reign over all of these forces. And he's saying that he is, not just above these forces, but above every name that is named. You recall that if you read in Acts 19... Artemis was, was the false god that the people there tended to worship. And you recall there's this uprising against Paul and his companions as they were preaching the gospel and men were, were burning their books and they were getting rid of all their idols and they were, they were putting some people out of business as they turned away from the worship of this false god. And the people, they would raise their voices one and they would cry, Great is Artemis! There was power in naming the name 
of a God who is not a God. Even with regards to demonic forces, people in that day and age, they believed that if you knew the name of a demon, you knew the name of some spiritual power, if you could just name that name, that there was power even in the naming. And he's saying, no, it's far above every name that you could ever name. Not just Artemis, not just some names that we know of today. Any name that man can ever concoct because man's heart is an idol factory. So any idol that you can make up in your heart that he is so far above even that name that you can't even imagine. Far above. Not just the rulers and the powers and the things that actually are, but the things that aren't even. Do you understand? There really are powers and authorities and rulers and dominions in heavenly places today. Artemis doesn't exist, and yet he's higher than her too. Do you understand? Even the things that you can make up, he's higher and above and beyond. You can't invent anything. But he says this not just for today, but for the age to come. The Bible seems to really separate time into two concepts. There is, there is an age and there is an age to come. There is a life now and then there is a life to come. And I told you how there is this, this realized eschatology that comes with realizing that we are in the age to come. That the inauguration of the kingdom of God has come. And yet there is more yet to come. It says, scripture says that he must rule until the last enemy has been placed under his feet. But I thought you said he was over all enemies. Well, he is. Yet he continues to allow them to roam and to taunt and to tempt. He's being patient with us so that the last of the saints can come in. This is what he's doing. Because when the day comes that he comes and he destroys those enemies once and for all and wipes them out, along with him will be all of those that aren't found in Christ. So he's being patient that the last of his will come into the kingdom. And then when that day comes, he will destroy all evil from the face of the earth. Scripture says that he put all things, verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. I didn't, I didn't finish reading Psalm 110 where the Lord said to my Lord, come sit at my right hand until I make your enemy your footstool. I think everybody just has sectionals in their house now, right? Does any, nobody really has like a regular reading chair with a footstool any longer? Do you? <laughs> Maybe we're not as familiar with footstools. Or, if, or maybe this was, an, what, what churches have kneeling benches? Anglicans, I guess, if we had kneeling benches or something like this. What I found the few times I've been in churches that had kneeling benches is mostly what people did was they flipped them down and put their feet on them to get comfortable during the, during the service. But, but, but you know the picture that he's painting here. He is so far above them, he uses them for his feet. When, when I've, I've confessed to you before that when I was a little boy, I had this I had this idea of the end times. I, I think I've had some dreams in this vein when I was a child that there was, there was Jesus coming back to, to, to claim his kingdom for himself and then there was Satan who was trying to hold on with everything within him. And that's, that's true. Satan is trying to hold on with all the power he can muster. And Christ Jesus is coming back to claim what is rightfully his. But in my mind, it was an even battle of sorts. It was a rocky movie. It was a back and forth. They were each laying some good licks. And ooh, that's Jesus. And we knew Jesus was going to conquer, but... Man, it's really touch and go there for a minute. And we're reminded that when Christ Jesus comes, it's like a man telling his dog to get in a kennel. Get. He's a footstool. He's so far above and beyond every power that is and every power that can be imagined and every name that can be named. So far above them that they can be rightly called his footstool. I rest my feet upon you having rested from the work that I have done. Do you understand what that means for you? If he really is the God of the universe, if he really is the king over every square inch, if he really does look out across the whole of human experience and say, this is mine, then what do we ever have to be fearful of? What do we ever have to be anxious about? 
What doubt do we ever have that he will not carry us through to the end? And how can I know that this power is at work within me? Beloved, I ask you again, are you Christian? Have you repented? Have you believed? Because I tell you, I tell you based on the word of God that the power necessary to make you a Christian is no less than the power that God exercises in casting demons into hell. When you look at a, a, when you look at a transformation in a man like Saul of Tarsus as he's going along the road and we see the power of God overcoming come him and we see that he is blinded and completely transformed into something else, you realize that your own transformation was no less remarkable was no less powerful than this. You've already, what I'm trying to say to you is, you've already tasted this power. If you're a Christian, you've already tasted this power. And so you have every right to look to the power at work in raising Christ from the dead, seating him at his right hand, and making his enemy his footstools, and knowing that power is at work within me now. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We wouldn't want to live, Father, in a world where Christ Jesus wasn't king over all. It would be unlivable. And so we praise you that he reigns even now. And I pray that you help us to live as citizens of that kingdom. To honor him. And not just to honor him with our obedience, but to honor him with our courage and our bravery and our willingness to suffer well for the sake of his name. So, Father, I pray that you take this word now and you do a work by it. You transform us. You cause us to be more like him. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.